HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cider Week NYC, happening November 6th through 15th, 2015. For more information, check out ciderweeknyc.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, a weekly conversation about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm Kim Kessler with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA Law School, and we are broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we are talking food waste. According to the USDA, America wastes about 133 billion pounds of food worth more than $162 billion annually pretty unbelievable numbers. And in the past few years, this issue has begun to receive increasing attention from the media and policymakers. And that's in large part, thanks to the work of our first guest today, Dana Gunders, through her work as a staff scientist with with the National Resources Defense Council. Dana is the author of a widely distributed 2012 report, Wasted, How America is Losing Up to 40% of Its Food from Farm to Fork to Landfill. And more recently, a book on what we can do at home to prevent food waste. The book is called Waste-Free Kitchen Handbook, and I'm very glad to welcome Dana to the show. Thanks, Kim. It's great to be here. We're glad to have you on. So, Dana, you and I uh, first met several years ago, right after your groundbreaking report came out. This is um, to say we met as adults, not counting the fact that we went to high school together. Um, (laughs) But we met when you were... Kind of, I think, in probably your early stages of the post-report work. Can you tell us about the path from that research report to this book, which is really a consumer-facing guide? What uh, what have you been working on, and what made you want to focus on consumers with this effort? Sure. Well, you know, before we we came out with that report, we really weren't hearing much about the topic. And when we, after releasing that report, we were really surprised by just how much it resonated with people. We heard from people from all over, and everyone from teachers to uh, parents to waitresses and people who worked in grocery stores and 
you know, electrical engineers who wanted to start to do something on food waste. So it was really um, interesting to us, and it, it pointed out to me how much resonance this issue has, how much people care about it, and that no one really wants to waste food, and yet it happens. And so I started thinking about, you know, why? Why does it happen when people aren't, aren't certainly aren't trying to do it? And what I came out with was that there's a whole set of information um, that we really don't always have at our fingertips that can help enable people to waste less food. And there's also kind of a mindset and a set of strategies that we can employ that can help us waste less food that people aren't necessarily thinking about. So I decided to kind of bring that together, and the result is the the Waste-Free Kitchen Handbook um, that just came out last month. So one of the things the book does talk about is the drivers of food waste, the book and the report, I should say. Um, And you do point to portion size, which I think is really interesting. Can you talk about that? Sure, yeah. You know, actually, the amount of food that gets wasted per person in the U.S. has grown by 50% since the 1970s. And when you look at that trend, you see another trend alongside that, and that is that portion sizes has have also grown tremendously over that time period. And, you know, the average cookie has quadrupled in calories since the 1980s, and even the recipes in The Joy of Cooking, for instance, you know, the iconic cookbook, those recipes have actually been adjusted so that servings are larger, Um, and a recipe that used to serve 10 now serves 7. So really, you know, there's only two things happening to those portions. Either we're eating them, you know, those extra calories, or we are not, and they're going to waste. Um, So I think that really is is something that impacts the amount of waste over across the country. Yeah. You know, I just actually read one of Julia Child's memoirs of her time in France, and she talks about converting her book for the French recipes to American recipes, which... Is going back in time, but they had to increase the portions. That was some of the feedback from her American editors, and it kind of comes <laughs> to mind now what uh, increasing. We might have to all increase like our grandmother's recipes and our mother's recipes for the portions that are expected today. Um, right. When you talk about the statistic of 50%, was it, did you say 50%, we're waste 50% more food per person now than we did in the 70s? That's right. Yeah. Can you unpack that? Like, how do you ascertain that kind of statistic? Is it that statistic um, actually comes from a very macro evaluation of the calories in our food supply and how much people are tending to eat? So, um, the National Institutes of Health looked at well, how many calories are are coming, you know, are in our food supply after we import and export food? How many calories do we have? flowing through the country and then looked at how many calories people are eating. And the difference there is what, you know, they're, they're basically saying goes to waste. And that difference actually increased by 50% since the 1970s. Do you think that there are some ways that our cultural increase in attention to food or an even really increased appreciation of food in some ways has contributed to food waste? Like in the sense that that may be a factor in what you talk about as aspirational shopping and purchasing? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that when, 
when we're in the grocery store, we really try to, you know, we are aspirational. We are, Our hopes and dreams for how we eat kind of play out in the grocery store, and we buy lots of fresh fruits and veggies. We might get adventurous and try a new ingredient, all of which are great things. Um, but then sometimes what happens is the reality of our week unfolds, and by Wednesday we're exhausted and throwing a frozen pizza in the oven. And so there's this kind of mismatch between uh, what we're shopping for and then what our eating actually turns out to be. And I think that is one of the reasons we find ourselves with, you know, rotten lettuce in our in our right. produce drawer at the end of the week. It's like um, buying that the outfit that you'll never wear or yeah, won't right, fit into. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> won't fit into after the big event that you're planning to wear it to. Um, yeah. So what else is, besides consumer behavior, you know, what are some of the other things that are at play in terms of options to address and mitigate food waste? And we, we are going to be talking later in the show um, about the sell-by sell dates issue with Emily Broadley. But outside of that, in terms of policies or ways of incentivizing food waste at the retail or government level, what are some of the other major options we need to be thinking about? Yeah, well, I will start by saying that one really exciting piece of news is that last month, um, the actually on September 16th, the Obama administration announced federal targets to reduce food waste by 50% by 2030. So that was something we were really hoping to see, and they came out with a very ambitious goal. And now the question is, okay, so how do we make that a reality? Um, and it's something the government can't do alone. It's really going to take all hands on deck. Um, they're certainly looking at what policies they can change um, you know, within the various agencies of the administration. Um, expiration dates that you'll talk about later are certainly one place they can go. Um, also just looking at, you know, how are some of their rules affecting donations? Um, can tax credits be extended to different um, players in the food industry in order to further incentivize uh, food donations, for instance, and also, you know, liability protections? Right. Um, our businesses, you know, I think both our restaurants and our grocery stores are a little bit at the mercy of their customers' expectations. And so, you know, they're doing things like cooking rotisserie chickens all the way up until 8.59 when they close at 9 p.m. because a customer coming in at 8.45 expects to have a rotisserie chicken, you know, ready and waiting. Um, and so, you know, I think there is there is some onus on them to look at what they're wasting and, and try to reduce that. I think there's also onus on us as customers to kind of be more um, understanding of some of the changes that they need to make in order to waste less. So instead of expecting that they have that chicken ready, you know, maybe understanding that in the last hour they don't cook chickens and we need to give them 10 minutes notice and so that they can, they can make sure one is ready for us. Right, or the, you know, the sort of just abundance, the appearance of abundance at all times, um, which I think also affects people's desire to participate in certain markets as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you'll never walk into a grocery store and see, like, just a few apples left in the the bin, right? You always see these big piles of them, and that's because over time they've noticed when there's just a few left, people don't buy them. 
Um, and if you talk to farmers at the farmers market, they'll tell you the same thing. You know, that last bunch of chard never gets never gets taken. Um, so it is uh, again upon us to to go ahead and buy those things. Buy the apple that has a little bit of a scar on it. Buy the last one left, and that will allow those selling them to kind of change what they're doing. And before we turn to some of the strategies um, specifically that you have in the book, in talking about working with industry, I mean, how do you see this as a factor for them? Or how have you been able to work with industry? And I, you know, I think there's a concern that isn't there just an interest for them in selling more food? So is there, you know, are interests aligned in terms of reducing waste at the consumer level? What have you been yeah. finding in your conversations there? I think that's a great question. I mean, certainly it is in their interest to reduce waste in their own operations um, and even up their supply chains because they're sort of bearing the cost of food that goes to waste. You know, it's getting wrapped into their costs when, when their suppliers wind up having food go to waste. Um, when it comes to the people they're selling food to and, you know, wanting to kind of sell as much food as possible, you know, I think there is some truth to that. But at the same time, uh, grocery stores get, uh, they really they really want repeat customers more than they want a big sale at any one point in time. And so, you know, you look at a company like Walmart, for instance, they're all about value and their customers getting the most value out of their food. Certainly, if you're throwing part of your food out, you're not getting the most value of it. And so I think there's kind of a tension there because, sure, they would love to see, you know, huge huge grocery sales. At the same time, um, they also are, they want brand loyalty and they want their customers to come back. And if they want to be helpful retailers and kind of the, the helpful community store, then helping their customers not waste food is a component of that. So turning to some of the ideas you have in your book, you talk a lot about first things you can freeze, which um, is certainly a favorite strategy of mine. What are some of the other, you know, maybe top uh, two or three things you think you'd like people to take away from the book Um, or explore further in the book? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing we go into in depth in the book is how to best store food because that really can help prolong its life and just give you a, a longer period of time to use it. So we have a whole directory of 85 different foods, and you can look up how is it best stored, how about how long is it as it's freshest for, you know, can you eat the skin or the green part or the stem or whatever it is. Um, so I think just getting to know our food and how to best store it is important. Um, another is trying to plan your shopping a little bit better so that it more closely matches um, the reality of your cooking and eating. And, you know, some people do that through extensive meal planning. Um, For others of us, myself included, who are a little bit less organized, um, I think just being able to take a moment when you're in the grocery store and look back in your cart and just make sure you actually have a time in mind when you can eat that food. You know, say, when am I going to eat all this food? And if you can identify a time that you're going to use it, then great. If you can't, then maybe it's not the right week to It's just like it. for your bomb shelter supply, maybe yeah. you don't need to be right, taking exactly. I also love the strategy of not you taking a cart or taking a smaller basket. I mean, I am definitely the person who tries to employ that all the time. Like, I'm just getting peanut butter and then 
that have eight eight shop keepers come up to me and be like, um, "Are you sure you don't want a cart? Because it really looks like right. you're about to drop item number fifteen on the floor right now." But I still think that seemed like a, a good idea. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, one thing that's come up in some of the consumer research around this topic is that people don't like empty spaces when it comes to food. So we love white space when it comes to, like, you know, cool-looking homes or other design features. But when it comes to food, we don't like to see a big empty space. So we don't like a big plate that only has a little bit of food. We don't like to see a big refrigerator that only has a little bit of food in it. And we don't like to see a big shopping cart that only has a little bit of food in it. So I think trying to shrink those spaces, whether it's your size or your refrigerator, if that's doable, or your your shopping, you know, basket um, can help. It's really interesting. Okay, so we have, we surveyed our team here at Eating Matters, and we are, we want to run some of our own personal food waste strategies by you, and you can tell us if they're either wise or weird, and I'm hoping that some of these will end up in your second edition. So we have our intern, Austin Bernierski, told us that he doesn't believe that apples have cores as long as you eat them from the bottom up. Wise or weird? (laughs) <laughs> Maybe both. My husband's <laughs> the same way. He loves showing me how he can eat the apple core. But I oh, so you're familiar with this? I was like, oh, so cores are socially constructed. I learned a lot to, from <laughs> this. So you, I had not heard of this, but yes, that's that was one idea. Okay, um, mine was I wanted to use the pizza crust that my kids didn't eat and freeze them, and to use in like a tomato and bread Italian soup later. <laughs> don't worry, I, I like didn't it. do it. I, like I didn't it. do it. <laughs> I told my husband, I was like, look at all these pizza crusts. We can definitely use them in something. I'm going to throw them into a soup. And he frowned and, you know, I ultimately decided not to. But if you have any advice on what to right. do with kids' pizza crusts, I think that would be Oh, I think that's good. Useful. Or you could, um, you could put them in a blender, pulse them in a blender, you get breadcrumbs and then use it to... Know, Maybe more appetizing, although then they don't get boiled. <laughs> right. That's true. My producer's <laughs> sitting here looking horrified. Okay, so we're going to move on to her um, her strategy. This is Jenny Liu, Jenny Liu, and she was basically like, I think you should just eat everything. That is how you don't waste anything on your plate. So is that a, a good strategy or not, Dana? Yeah, I mean, you got to be careful with that one. I think as, as soon as we start um, seeing how much food gets wasted out there the first instinct is to just go eat everyone else's leftovers and all their food and five pounds later you decide actually that wasn't such a good idea yeah (laughs) so if you're really careful about what's on your plate then sure and and that's a good thing to be careful when you're cooking your own stuff with your portions but um when you're out to eat i would say the better strategy is to maybe carry with you a little tupperware or something that you can use to take food home when you have leftovers Great. So it sounds like maybe we're not going to make the short list of people you'll be calling for ideas, but we appreciate the chance to run them by you. Um, I want to thank you, Dana, for joining us. We're now going to take a short break and come back with a uh, discussion between Jenna and Emily Broadleib, who worked with you on the report um, on food sell by dates and their role in food waste, Emily of Harvard Law School. So thanks again, and we'll be back after a short break. Cider Week helps to bring profitability to local orchards while reviving heirloom apple varieties by cultivating awareness of craft cider. Cider Week connects cider makers from New York State 
and select pioneering guest cideries outside the state to buyers from top restaurants, bars, and retail shops across New York City. Those culinary tastemakers, in turn, help increase consumer awareness of cider's pleasures by hosting public events, tastings, dinners, classes, and pairings that build appreciation and demand for regional ciders. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You know, every Tuesday at 3 p.m., I stop in the studio, walk to the far side, sit in my favorite blue chair. If you ever stop by Roberta's, look through the window and you can see that chair itself. You know, and I've been sitting here for five plus years, 250 episodes, have met some of the best people in the food world, such great culinary minds. Um, and recently we just relaunched our website, added a whole bunch of shows, but we still need you, our listeners, our friends, our fans, even guests themselves, to help us out. We, we, you know, we're a 501c3, a nonprofit, and we're not really doing this for the money. We're doing this for the love, for the greater good of the food world as a whole. So get on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, click that little pounding heart in the top right corner and, you know, give what you can or just keep on listening. We'd love to have you. And we're back. You're listening to Eating Matters, where today we're talking about food waste. Joining the show now is Emily Broad-Lieb. Emily is an assistant clinical professor of law, as well as deputy director of the Harvard Law School Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation. She co-founded and directs the center's Food Law and Policy Clinic and has worked and written extensively on food waste issues. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I understand that you've worked with Dana Gunders in the past. Can you tell me more about that experience and how you came to work on food waste issues in general? Sure. So we, um, the way that we originally got involved in food waste was through uh, actually working with Doug Rao, who is the former president of Trader Joe's and has founded and, and um, created this program called The Daily Table, which um, has gotten press for being an, an initiative to bring food that would otherwise get thrown away to a community in Boston that was lacking access. So we started working with him on some of the regulations around expired foods, um, and and then through that actually came to meet Dana, and our interests really aligned. She had just been working on food waste throughout the supply chain, um, so we really we were both really interested in this question of what what. How, how did the regulation of expiration dates come about? How, you know, what are the what are the rules mean? What do the labels mean? So that was how we got involved in working with her. Oh, great! And yeah, this is something that I've always had so much interest in. Can you tell me a little bit about the standard system for regulating food date labels in the U.S.? Sure. Well, what we learned actually through this research, um, and, and I'm, I'm glad you said you've always wondered about it. It was something that not only many consumers have wondered about, but many um, government agencies and nonprofits and intergovernmental organizations had been saying, we're seeing food waste increase. Someone should really understand how date labels play into this and what they mean. Um, so everyone was wondering. And what we really did was look back through the history of, the, of how they've been regulated. Uh, our main finding was that at the federal level, there's really no regulation of date labels with the exception of dates on infant formula, which um, the, the, those date labels are regulated. But for all other foods, there's no federal regulation 
Uh, and in, instead, it's actually primarily industry actors saying, you know, here's when you can consume our food and get it at the best taste and, and, and when it's its freshest. Um, but interestingly, some states have also come in and, and jumped in and actually started requiring labels because they, I think, also didn't know what they meant. Right. Wow. Wow. <laughs> no federal system, no federal oversight for, for food labels besides infant formula. Right. That is very surprising. Why, why is that? I mean, can you, can you tell us a little bit why, about why there is no, this seems like something, something that should be automatically regulated. So um, how did it kind of come to pass that it's not as federally? Well, the, I think part of it really came about because the reason dates appeared on packages um, historically was that uh, as people got kind of further and further away from the farm and away from where their food was produced, they started wanting to have these indicators. There was a sense of, well, how will I know how recently this was harvested or put into this package? Um, so there's a push really in the 70s and 80s by consumers to say that they wanted these dates. And industry, as they do, responded to this demand. Um, but at the same time, there had been a really, there had been a lot of discussion um, at the FDA and within Congress about, well, maybe we should regulate these dates that are starting to appear on our foods. Um, and in one Congress alone in the 1970s, there were 10 bills that were considered around regulating date labels, but none of them passed. So we just wound up with this totally fragmented system that appears to consumers as if it's regulated. It appears as if it's as if those dates are meaningful, um, and and in fact quite contrary to the original consumer um, interest in having the dates, most people now think that they're related to safety when, in fact, they're really just, you know, quality indicators that are that are suggestions of the manufacturer. From about freshness, specifically. About freshness. And how do we, where does the food safety, um, you know, get get regulated at the federal level? Or there, is, there, is that by a separate agency? Does the FDA also have purview over that? Or how do we make sure that the food supply is safe? Well, the FDA, there's an interesting divide in our food system, which, you know, maybe a topic for, for a whole other discussion, <laughs> but just the bulk of food is regulated in terms of both safety and, and labeling by the Food and Drug Administration, um, and then a smaller part of the food supply, primarily meat and poultry and, and some egg products, is regulated by USDA. Um, but I think what FDA has said and what many, many um, uh, food safety experts have said is that this date is actually not related to safety. So that there's, there's actually never been a foodborne illness that's been linked back to consuming food after that date. Hmm. Um, so if you're, if you, foods that are related to foodborne illness have, they're contaminated with salmonella or E. coli or, um, or some other pathogen, and when you consume them actually isn't, um, isn't, uh, relevant in terms of whether you'll get sick or you'll get just as sick from eating them the first day as you would eating them the third day or fifth day. The only exception to that is listeria, which um, is, you know, the food would have to be previously contaminated, but because listeria is more prevalent on foods that are that you don't cook after you take them out of your refrigerator, there is some risk with those foods. And what we kind of argue in our work has been we're not actually communicating that to consumers really well either. Uh, so the foods that are that that you might want to um, eat really by the date that's on them are things like unpasteurized cheeses, deli meats, um, unreheated hot dogs, which you know most people cook them. But if you're planning to eat them without cooking them, you should 
um, you know, think again or try to eat them really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so in our work, a lot of our work has been to say that everyone is, the bulk of the food supply we're throwing away too early, but then there's this small handful of products that we're not actually communicating to people that they actually are uh, somewhat risky. Um, mm-hmm. So I, we think we need to change that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in your research, have you found that there are certain foods that are particularly mislabeled and therefore wasted more because people believe them to be unsafe? Um, I, you know, I read once that eggs, for example, are safe to consume up to three months after the date. And you, you just talked um, about that in terms of most foods are, are safe. But I'm wondering if there are like particular products that are wasted, um, you know, commonly used products that are wasted maybe more than others because people um, assume them to be unsafe? That's a great question. You know, actually, I like that you brought up eggs. The other, there's a, there's a few examples. I think often when we talk to people and when I say what I just said to you, which is there's a small group of food products where, where there actually is a safety risk, most people think that that is eggs, meat, poultry, um, you know, because those are risky products. But actually because we cook those products, any pathogens that are in them get cooked out if you, if you heat them properly and cook them all the way through. So I think that many people look at those things and say, the date passed, this is going to be a safety risk, rather than realizing that because you're going to cook them anyway, you're going to actually kill whatever pathogens that would, would be in there. So I think we probably waste a hell of a lot of meat, poultry, eggs that are actually going to be really safe. Um, but I think the other group of products would be shelf-stable products that can sit in your pantry for months and years, mm-hmm. um, and like canned goods and pastas and cereals and crackers. In most of those foods, in all of those foods, really, there's no safety risk. Um, that's why you can keep them in your pantry. But because they all bear a date on them, people often throw them away um, when, in fact, I think the safest, you know, the, the best thing to do is really taste them and say, if it tastes stale, if it doesn't, if it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, if it doesn't please you as a consumer, then feel free to throw it away. But don't throw it away just because that date has passed and you think they're going to be taking a, an unnecessary risk. Right. So, and you know, and, and as we kind of look towards what um, giving advice to consumers for what they can do to to help um, change the current system, I'm wondering what your what your thoughts are on where the kind of pushback is coming from to make some of these um, wholesale changes to food date labels. I mean, I assume that it's you know for any kind of food manufacturer to to change a date on their packages or change anything on their on their you know front of pack, for instance, it's going to represent millions of dollars worth of work. So are you getting the most pushback um, in your work from industry or is it from, you know, the government government agencies just not having capacity to, to regulate this? Like, where is the opposition to enacting stronger, more effective, accurate labeling scheme coming from? That's a great question. I, you know, what's interesting is since our, our report came out and in all the follow-up work we've done, Almost everyone we talk to across the board agrees that this is an issue and that there's something should be done. I think that there's two places where this becomes challenging. The first is that because every all the manufacturers are using different dates and now states, as I mentioned, are requiring different things, it makes it really challenging to do this um, without a federal regulation. So it's sort of, it, it, it seems like without having any federal standard across food products, 
that there's, it's either going to be too difficult to do or we're not going to really be successful in, in communicating better with consumers. So what we really are pushing for is a standard quality-based date on foods, products where it's a quality indicator. So something like Freshest Buy, mm-hmm. which we've seen in preliminary um, focus groups, that that really uh, resonates with people. It's very clear that that's about quality and not about safety. And then a standard label for those small group of foods that FDA has shown to be uh, risky. Um, but I think that that it's it's a it's a challenge. It's a challenge in this climate getting anything passed through Congress. It's right. uh, it's a challenge for FDA, who is very very busy implementing the Food Safety Modernization Act and doing a lot of work that they've been asked to do by Congress mm-hmm. to say, well, take on this additional work. So I think that that's where we're really people need to try to come together because we're going to kind of need a standard that everyone can start to follow. Um, And I think the other challenge related to that is that there's a lot of question about what's the best standard, what phrase is going to work the best. And that's something we've been trying to do some research on and get some good data so that we can show that if we move in this direction, people will waste less food for for no reason and it will be more clear, less misleading, and, um, and ultimately lead to better outcomes for consumers and for the food system. Great. And that's our show for today. I want to thank both of our guests, Dana Gunders and Emily Broadlieb, for joining us. Our show intern is Austin Brunyarski. Show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our sponsors and our show engineer, Liz Smith. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us at Twitter um, on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. This is Jenna Ute wrapping up for the show today, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>